0: Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zirung. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Max Schmidheiser, Chair of the PPA Ethics Committee. Dr. Schmidheiser, for those who haven't gotten to know you yet, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, David, and thank you so much for having me on um, today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, So, I'm a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist. Uh, I am the owner of Oasis Neurobehavioral Health. And uh, through that company, I see clients for telehealth in Pennsylvania for teletherapy. Prior to that, I worked for almost 11 years at Moss Rehab Hospital and their outpatient brain injury center, as well as their inpatient rehab facility there. And that was that's located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I also, when I came on board there, uh, I had co-founded their uh, concussion center. So those uh, brain injury and concussion and rehab are our are particular areas of expertise. I'm also currently seeing students through Haverford College's counseling center uh, through teletherapy. A couple other hats that I wear uh, include I'm a I'm a co-principal investigator on a Grant funded research project working with the Mind Your Brain Foundation using immersive virtual reality technology to find ways to develop modules that can be helpful for individuals with uh, brain injury in the course of the rehab. Um, So that's an exciting project to be involved with. And I also teach in the counseling program at the University of Pennsylvania, and ethics is uh, one of the classes that, uh, that I teach there.
0: Well, you're a busy psychologist, uh, Max. Uh, you're involved <laughs> in many things. Thank you for just kind of sharing some of those. Sure. Um, and as, as you were talking, it, you know, our main contact today is your work with the ethics committee, mm-hmm. uh, but um, we could talk for hours, maybe days about uh, ethics in these various areas, but what, what are some of the things you've encountered from an ethical perspective regarding um, teletherapy uh, virtual reality, ethical implications in treatment for folks with TBI, and also um, teleassessment?
1: Sure, sure. No, great questions. And uh, it's, it's you know, I'll tell you, it's, it's an area that I've been interested in for some time. And it's, it's so interesting to see how over the course of this pandemic for the past couple of years, it's really become a matter of necessity to provide teletherapy at various points when there have been lockdowns. And so what seemed initially a number of years ago with my interest as something that was at this sort of distant horizon um, that, uh, you know, at some point it was going to be more in vogue. The fact that it just became ubiquitous um, over these past couple of years is really uh, fascinating. And I think that, you know, just I'll say that I, I think that it just really has opened up um, the ability to receive treatment um, for a lot of different individuals in Pennsylvania, especially those in, say, more uh, remote areas in the state um, that they otherwise really uh, wouldn't have been able to receive. Um, so I think that's, that's a really uh, great service that the, the teletherapy medium is providing um, I'll, I'll share also that, you know, it, it, it really does, um, as just about everybody who is providing teletherapy services currently knows, it, it requires um, a, a solid knowledge base of the strengths and limitations of the the technology that's being used, um, an appreciation for um, some obstacles and hurdles that a client might encounter in the course of interacting with that teleconferencing platform that they're using. So those those are uh, sort of uh, issues that touch on the the variable of competence um, in the domain of ethics. I think also, it, as it relates to confidentiality, uh, making sure that the platform being used is um, is something that really does, uh, is compliant with say HIPAA, um, that privacy is, is really being maintained that it is a secure connection. Um, so those things um, are also just uh, important points that wouldn't have to be considered say in a face-to-face therapy. I, I would also say I mean I know you also mentioned about teleassessment and virtual reality certainly those could you know we could go down a rabbit hole with with uh, talking about those issues at, oh, at that episode yeah <laughs> but uh, but I think you know for uh, you know for what it's worth for the audience um, you know I think again tel- teletherapy just seems to be ubiquitous nowadays and I think those you know the issue of competence the issue of m- making sure confidentiality is being maintained through through um, through the medium that's being used the teleconferencing uh, platform that's being used um, those are really important points and then i'll also share too in a face-to-face therapy obviously someone is presenting in one's office then that's a controlled environment whereas with teletherapy it's often you know going into that person's living space and so we want to make sure that um, you know we're checking in with the client Uh, that there's, you know, that they're alone, let's say, or, you know, if there's someone else with them, that there isn't anyone else there that we should know about and that we've maybe discussed ahead of time. If someone does come into the room, how, how we'd process that and, and other things that, that one wouldn't necessarily have to consider in face to face, like say emergency protocols. If something happens, you know, what, what would happen in the course of responding to, um, a situation like that with resources nearby to them. So, um, you know, I think those are relevant considerations ethically for for teletherapy.
0: So, Max, what are some of the things that the Pennsylvania Psychological Association Ethics Committee does?
1: Sure. So, one of the major events that we host and facilitate uh, is called the Ethics Educator Conference. It takes place once a year, uh, typically in the fall. And it, it draws in uh, people involved with uh, teaching ethics uh, across the state of Pennsylvania, um, and typically teaching ethics in psychology programs uh, at an undergraduate and or graduate level. And um, it's a full day event, typically. And in the course of that, we, we hear presenters discuss topics that relate to um the you know the full scope of considerations um, with ethics education and and their t- different topics that uh, perhaps some of the conferences from year to year are organized around, and the advantage to having such uh, uh, a knowledgeable group at that conference is that there is a lot of discussion among the members, a lot of um, uh, you know really engaging interactions, and at that same conference um, we also. Uh, Provide, we, we also present a couple of awards, um, and so the ethics committee is responsible for selecting recipients each year for the Bricklin Award, which is in honor of uh, Dr. Patricia Bricklin, who taught at Widener University. Uh, I had the pleasure actually to, to take courses um, under her during my time at Widener, and, um, and so she was- She know, was a like, major
0: force in psychology in Pennsylvania.
1: That's right. You know, she was just, you know, just had such a big heart and just, you know, was just a really incredible person. Um, So the award is in her memory and her honor, and that's bestowed upon a uh, graduate student in a psychology program in Pennsylvania uh, who submits um, uh, some kind of piece related to Ethical considerations um, and psychology, and then we have a group of individuals uh, from the ethics committee who review that submission and then, you know, uh, pick their um, uh, the one that uh, stands out for that award for that year, and that's presented at the ethics educators conference. And then there's also another award that the ethics committee selects, and that's for um, it's it's called the ethics educator award, and that's for um, an individual who is more seasoned and experienced in in the course of their career who has made great contributions uh, in the state of pennsylvania and in the field of psychology pertaining to ethics so those those are some of the roles for the ethics committee we also meet multiple times a year um, to discuss and touch base as a committee different things that are going on uh, maybe for upcoming activities or events or just you know considerations that may be related to changes in the law or ethical considerations. Um, and then we'll also touch base about ethical vignettes that, um, uh, that uh, different committee members will put together. Um, just as an example, um, Dr. Jean Slattery or Dr. Linda Canals are very involved in organizing those vignette discussions and generating some of the ethical vignettes, clinical vignettes that, that the committee members will discuss.
0: I want to talk more about the the, the vignettes and the articles that come out of that, but um, let me go back just for a moment to the awards that you mentioned, um, Mm -hmm. particularly the Brooklyn Award. Uh, Dear listener, if you're a uh, student or an educator and have interest in uh, nominations for the Brooklyn Award, reach out to PPA through our uh, website, papsy.org, or by phone, uh, phone numbers on the website as well, to find out more about that award. So uh, Max, with the with the vignettes that you mentioned, the final product is an article that is published in the Pennsylvania Psychologist. Can you talk a little bit more about how those articles
1: are developed? Sure. So typically, again, the individuals who um, tend to be you know really spearheading that are Dr. Linda Kanaus and Dr. Gene Slattery. Uh, they've been very involved in that. Uh, Although there are a number of other committee members who will submit uh, clinical vignettes based on encounters that they themselves have had and, and dilemmas they have experienced, uh, or those that they've heard about that they think might make for um, a good food for thought and good um, uh, a good topic to say touch on and reflect on for the committee and for the the psychological community in the state at large. So typically. What happens is uh, there will be um, an email that goes out to the committee members who want to join in to discuss a vignette. And the vignette itself will be posted there for the think about leading up to the meeting. And then in the meeting itself, when we're all joining virtually, we get to really share our thoughts and reflections on that. And then one of the committee members there will usually take the notes and will keep track of everyone's comments. And then after our discussion, which is really, you know, engaging, and it's, it, I will say that it's it's really an honor to be part of the ethics committee comprised of members who are so incredibly knowledgeable and engaged. Uh, it really is uh, a really special experience. So, the committee members will share their thoughts, process the vignette, and afterwards, um, say, for example, if it's either Dr. Knauss or Dr. Slattery, they'll organize those notes, review them, and then put the notes back out there to those in attendance to make sure that their thoughts are accurately recorded, or if there's something else that uh, perhaps the person who made a comment wants to add before it goes into print, and then that's uh, submitted for publication. I think that just, again, provides a great benefit to um, to everyone reading uh, the Pennsylvania Psychologist to to be able to read those dilemmas and stimulate their critical thinking skills as it pertains to ethical decision-making.
0: Max, thank you you for going into that, because one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about um, how the uh, vignette articles are developed is I've had the same experience that you talked about of really finding it a privilege to participate in uh, such engaging and thoughtful uh, discussions. Pretty much every uh, PPA meeting or call over the, the many years I've been involved in PPA, I have come away feeling PPA is such a wonderful organization, such a wonderful group of amazing people, thoughtful, creative minds, and just good people. And and in this context, one of the crucial steps in formulating a response to an ethical dilemma that we might face in clinical practice is to consult and I have found this process of developing the, the vignette articles to be like a group consultation uh, regarding uh, an ethical dilemma and to, to hear the both novel and consensus of views on each dilemma. Has been just uh, wonderfully uh, engaging to my mind, and um, creates a sense of thoughtfulness. And so, the the outcome in that article that's published is the distillation of of a group consultation.
1: And, Absolutely,
0: uh, it's just an experience that I've I've really appreciated listening in on. Oh,
1: that's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, Max, what are some common ethical dilemmas that psychologists uh, might encounter? And then uh, how might PPA uh, assist with uh, navigating those dilemmas?
1: Sure. So I'll, I'll take uh, the second question first, actually, because I think that that's um, a really important um, uh, question that you're putting out there. And I think it could be hopefully very helpful to uh, those listeners out there in the audience about where they might be able to go um, if they have an ethical dilemma that they're working through. So. Um, I would uh, definitely recommend as one option, uh, reaching out to uh, uh, either Dr. Rachel Batterin or Dr. Molly Cowan um, at the PPA. Uh, Dr. Uh, Cowan is uh, our new director of professional affairs at the PPA um, stepping into the role uh, that had uh, up to the previous year been held by Dr. Sam Knapp for over 30 years. Um, so she's doing a great job with that. And they're both incredibly knowledgeable. And in my experience, the experience of colleagues who so I know have consulted with them, incredibly responsive and just you know an invaluable resource, uh, just being able to provide insight into ethical dilemmas or legal questions uh, that, that touch on the ethical considerations. Um, so that that's definitely uh, an excellent resource there. Another resource would be uh, the listserv, the PPA listserv. Um It's just you know putting it out there to the hive mind of a very engaged and knowledgeable community um, and that that can also be a great resource as well. And I would encourage anybody if, if you if you are interested in p- topics pertaining to ethics, please, please uh, i'd encourage you to apply you know just reach out to join our ethics committee we're always looking for uh, new members with fresh insights you know so i'd wholeheartedly encourage you to reach out to me to you know just shoot me an email if that's something that you're interested in but uh, so anyway so there's some great resources there for ethical questions uh, regarding your first question about potential ethical dilemmas that that psychologists encounter it, i think one thing to consider is just of course, just for the sake of putting it out there clearly to the audience, that an ethical dilemma is oftentimes a situation where we have different principles, ethical considerations that conflict, and, and it's not necessarily straightforward and easy to do the right thing. And so, for example, with the, the principle of beneficence, you know, making sure that we're doing right and uh, promoting the well the being of our clients. Uh, that that may come into cl- into conflict with um, promoting um, the client's autonomy. Um, perhaps there's a situation or or let's say non-maleficence or uh, preventing harm from coming to the client. So the client, for example, in that instance may want to engage in something of their choice that that could potentially result in harm coming to them. Um, and so there we have a conflict between, uh, say, our responsibility to minimize or prevent the harm coming to the client, but also respecting their autonomy and making choices on their own behalf. So, that would be an example of, of, a, of a dilemma where we're having a conflict between two principles and um, there's, there's going to be a trade-off. And as Sam Knapp always, you know, would say, and I think is really an important piece of wisdom, whenever we're confronting an ethical dilemma where we have a conflict of, of two or more principles, we, at the end of the day, want to give it careful consideration in terms of the consequences of that decision and and all the factors at play. But if we decide to really go with honoring one principle, say honoring in the case I gave, autonomy over non-maleficence, we would want to make sure we're minimizing the harm to the offended principle, as he would put it. You know, we're really doing our, our diligence to make sure that we're attending to the principle that we're not acting on and just making sure that uh, we're monitoring the situation and just, you know, also updating our decision making and action plan accordingly. So that, that's sort of a broad brushstroke uh, consideration for dilemmas in general. Uh, in terms of specific dilemmas that psychologists encounter, they usually relate to a number of themes as pertains to multiple relationships. Issues about confidentiality or informed consent, also just a matter of expertise or competence. So th- those are very common themes. There are others as well, like just uh, ending therapy or billing issues, the roles that a therapist might have, dealing with trainees. Um, so there, there are those are, I would say, just you know, very common areas where one might encounter um, a conflict between. Uh, different ethical principles. So you know within the case of say, multiple relationships or roles, an important element to consider there is, just in an example, that uh, one, one would not want to work clinically with someone where by virtue of them having another role that they're relating to that client with, that they would their professional performance would be or judgment would be impaired. Uh, and result in some harm to the clients. Sometimes that can be a difficult thing to consider, what, you know, what would be considered potential harm or, say, reasonably foreseeable harm that could come from having another role as related to that client. And uh, this becomes all the more tricky when you know it really becomes a matter of treatment access because, let's say, for example, you're a therapist who specializes in a certain area, and another practitioner who has that knowledge base is not readily accessible and so maybe you know this other client from uh, in a different context and so the question is then if you are going to proceed with the treatment you know what what can you do to really minimize the likelihood of that other role in which you know the client from you know that being an issue in the course of the treatment um so that that would just be again an example of an area that that's that where one finds a lot of ethical dilemmas that, that tend to spring up.
0: So, Max, um, there may be some listeners who see or hear the word ethics uh, mm-hmm. in practice, and the, the next thing that they experience is tension and anxiousness. Right. A- and that maybe ethics education is how to not lose your license and stay out of jail. Mm-hmm. Is that how PPA approaches ethics and the PPA ethics committee? Or is there another approach that that you and the committee and PPA take?
1: That's, that's a great question. And here again, I'd point out the influence um, and the thinking of uh, Dr. Sam Knapp um, in, in an approach that he really promoted uh, and and helped to um really increase awareness of and that and that's the approach of of positive ethical decision making or positive ethics which is an approach that that is largely used by the committee as a whole and really encouraged you know across the board for any kind of mental health professionals in and in, in how they relate to um, ethical considerations in practice and the approach of positive ethics is really to strive for the ethical ceiling as opposed to the floor, the ethical floor. And essentially one, to explain that a little bit, so the ethical ceiling is really striving for those aspirations, uh, those values that, that guide us that aren't necessarily enforceable, but certainly allow us to be, you know, facilitate us being better clinicians, better human beings, better citizens, and, the ethical floor would really just be a matter of looking at the ethics code, and letting that be the sole guide of our behaviors, in terms of ch- making sure we're checking the boxes and avoiding some kind of uh, complaint that might go before, you know, the state, uh, the state board. So that that's a more risk-averse approach, and it's more focusing on avoiding punishment as opposed to striving as is the case in a positive ethics approach, striving for the ethical ideals uh, that we seek to embody and cultivate. So that, that right there, I think, really uh, captures well the, how the, the ethics committee in general likes to approach the topic of ethics. And, and really, is, it's an approach that's strongly encouraged for any mental health professional in, in, in their embrace of ethics is, is striving for, for the ethical ceiling instead of the floor.
0: Max, that's been something that I've really appreciated about uh, PPA's approach to ethics. I'm a seasoned enough psychologist that I remember attending some scared straight or hellfire and brimstone uh, ethical workshops um, where where the everybody left feeling really fretful and, and uh, <laughs> a sense of doom. And, and over the years as I've attended PPA workshops, it has been so uplifting and freeing to think to frame it much more in terms of aspiring, like uh, like you said, to the ethical ceiling. That's a that's a much less weighing down, weighing down uh, mm-hmm. approach. And I think it's a, can lead to a really nice way of assisting folks that, whom we may be teaching about ethics. Sure. Um, they may come to us with ethical dilemmas and be very stressed out about it and if we model that sense of um aspiring to the ethical ceiling we we may help them both grow but grow in a more confident and and relaxed way and that's something that i've appreciated from sam over the years i think molly's doing a wonderful job with that as well
1: absolutely absolutely and if i can share too if i'm not mistaken I, i believe that there's there's research to support uh, the adoption of a positive ethical stance in practice as well in, in that uh, individuals who adopt such a, an approach are much less likely than individuals who adopt a risk-averse or a negative ethics approach uh, to um, engage or to come before the board or to have, you know, um, some kind of ethical uh, violations that, um, uh, that they're accused of. So there are those practical elements, but I think it's really to your point, David, what you were saying there, which is I think is really important, is that um, it can it's a very empowering. It's not a fear-based yes. approach. It really is a matter of wh- who do we want to be, and and not just as right prof- professionals, but as human beings. Um, you know, what what do we want to? continue to cultivate interpersonally in, in the type of person we are and that, that takes work from everybody and it, it's a constant process it's not something that of course we we ever just you know uh, snap our fingers and we're there it's uh, these kinds of ethical virtues that we're, we're working towards and, and values and, and aspirations are things that we set before us as um, as guiding lights of sorts and each day you know if we're, if we're mindful of that, you know, we're, we're looking as to how we're navigating towards that and, and where we have room to grow.
0: Max, we've uh, primarily talked about PPA's approach to ethics and resources that PPA offers from our publications to um, education offerings, but um, some of our listeners may be from, from other mental health disciplines or from other regions of our small planet. Do you have, if they have an interest in learning more about ethics, what suggestions might you have?
1: Sure. Uh, So I would wholeheartedly encourage individuals from other uh, allied mental health fields to get involved in in your own um, ethics organizations, get involved in your local, state, or national organizations as well. And I think that, you know, certainly Really being involved in those organizations, being knowledgeable about your own, the, the regulations that are specific to your field of practice will really help to empower you to do right by your clients and and uh, and just, you know, feel that uh, you're in the driver's seat with regard to your ethical decision-making.
0: Well, Max, thank you for joining us on Psychology Radio Cast, and um, thank you for our uh, the service that, that you're providing to the public, our profession, and Pennsylvania Psychological Association.
1: Well, thank you so much, David, for having me on, and it was really a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at you can also find us at PAPSY.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavinia Devdas, Nancy Marimor, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung.